Mayor Quimby, you are well-known, sir, for your lenient stance on crime. But suppose for a second that your house was ransacked by thugs, your family tied up in the basement with socks in their mouths, you try to open the door, but there's too much blood on the knob. What is your uh, question? My question's about the budget, sir. One of the most unfortunate things about history is the fact that we're never going to be able to get inside someone's head, that we're never going to be able to know exactly what people in certain time periods thought about their surroundings. Unfortunately, the best we're ever going to be able to do is make inferences. And I was thinking about how people in previous times, and, and for my example, I was thinking about medieval times, about how people in these periods thought about the future. When anyone in medieval England, let's say, anyone meaning a peasant, a noble, a king, a merchant, whoever, when these people thought about the future, what did that future look like to them? And when those people thought about the future, I think that in their mind, their future looked like more of the same that the only thing that they could conceivably imagine happening in 100 years' time from their current date is exactly what their current situation is like now. That's because for most of human history, change moved at an extremely slow pace. So slow, it's like watching a tree grow. Every day you look outside, the tree looks the same. You don't notice any changes day by day, but over years, you notice that tree growing bigger and bigger, albeit at a very slow pace. My point is here, when change happens very slowly, it's difficult for the people undergoing that change or living through that change to really notice what's going on. It's happening too gradually. And because of that, when you think about the future, you don't think as the future being too terribly different from where you are now. Now take that and compare it to how we think currently in our modern societies. In the historical period we live in now, change happens so quickly that it seems like almost nothing is going to stay the same. And that's something we start to expect. We don't expect things to stay the same for very long. We always want to be in motion. We always want to be moving forward. So when we think about the future, our future visions are completely different from what we're like today. And I think that's a pretty substantial change in human thinking over the years. But again, this is me just kind of theorizing. In any case, though, this rapid change that surrounds us, I think, really distorts our vision of time. That time for us is measured in seconds, and it seems like that time measurement gets smaller every year. And in a way, that almost makes it seem like time is moving slower for us, or at least that a hundred years from now seems like it's more like a millennia away rather than a century away. Yet when you look at things at a far greater scale, you realize that a hundred years is almost nothing. How many a hundred years have come before us and how many will come after us? So while we're all focused on our minute-by-minute -minute lives, 
we lose sense of the bigger picture and I feel like we start to take things that other people have spent a lot of time thinking about for granted. It's like thought in our life has been shoved off to the side and everything is about constant action instead. That a decision made quickly is better than one that has been well reflected on. And you'll see this in our activism and our politics as well. Everybody's saying we have to take action. Everybody's got to take action. Action all the time. Obviously, if you're not taking or doing any action, you're not doing anything worthwhile or valuable. And I feel like this is a dangerous road to go down. Because if you have no thought, everything's just action reaction. One of the great gifts we have as human beings is to use Stephen Covey's phrase, a space that exists between stimulus and response. When an animal comes into contact with an environmental stimulus, it has no choice but to respond to it. However, we as human beings have the choice when confronted with an environmental stimulus to sit back and think about how we're going to respond to it or if we're going to respond to it at all. But in our action, action, action type of society, it seems like that gap is getting smaller and smaller and we're reverting back to simple responses to whatever happens to us in our lives. That's not to say that there are never times that we have to take bold decisive action in our lives without so much forethought. And the truly great people are those who are able to take that bold decisive action, but able to come to these reasonable conclusions and well thought out conclusions in a short span of time. But for now, that's beside the point. The point I'm trying to make here today is that I feel like there's an abandonment of rational, reasonable, philosophical thought in our society for simple, oftentimes baseless actions. And this brings me to what inspired me to do this podcast, and not the podcast in general, this specific episode in the first place. And I struggled a long time about how I wanted to bring this up and move into the real core topic of today. Because I was inspired by an article that I read, and this was probably, to me, the most offensive article I had read in a very long time. And I knew this person had probably written this article in order to generate traffic and controversy and send a whole bunch of people to their website. And that's not a game I really want to play. So I struggled with two aspects of this podcast. And one was, is this going to be a direct response to this article? And my answer is going to be no. Instead, I'll use it as a touch point to focus on something much larger. And the second question was, do I actually send people to that article? Because in the end, that's exactly what the author wanted, was people to read this, potentially get outraged, and respond to it, thereby sending more people to their website. So I decided I'm not going to feed the clickbait. Instead, what I'm going to do is talk about this article in very vague terms and how exactly it inspired me to do this episode today. And just leave it at that. If people get really outraged or upset and are really demanding me to post the link to this article, then by all means email me 
and I will do exactly that. But for now, though, let's talk about what this piece was about. And the crux of this article was a rejection of rational thought. That rational thought is something that is used to oppress marginalized people and forward oppressive societal structures. And there are very few things that I could disagree more than with that particular point. The whole notion of this article that we have to reject rationality in order to forward a particular political agenda was about as offensive as you can imagine. But in my heart of hearts, I always feared something like this was coming because if you can't play the game using rational debate and facts, what's your only alternative? Well, to upend the table and play a different game. But there was one line that I think really stood out to me, and this was really the inspiration for this episode. The line was, rationality has no inherent value. And in a strange way, I agree with that statement, but that doesn't mean rationality has no value. Rational thought is a tool. So a hammer also has no inherent value until you find a nail you need to pound in. A screwdriver has no inherent value until you need to screw in a screw. A ruler has no inherent value until you need to measure something. And for our purposes, rational thought is most like a ruler in that scenario. We're using it to measure something. And what we're using it to measure is an idea's closeness to reality. So at this point you say, okay, I'm with you so far, but how exactly do we get to decide what reality is and how does rational thought measure our closeness to it? And through some virtue of being the only sentient beings on the planet, we do get to decide what reality is on our own terms, but I think we all know that there's some sort of reality outside our perception. And for our purposes, we can use Immanuel Kant as an example, because Kant really calls into question what the nature of reality exactly is. When you go through and study the history of philosophical thought, it's like every age in philosophy is a response to the age that came before it. So some philosopher will come out with a new theory that is in response to a major theory that came before it. So they'll come out and say, you know what, you've got it all wrong. I've got this great new philosophical theory. Here it is. It debunks yours entirely. And conveniently, it seems like they often wait until the philosophers who could argue back are dead. Therefore, their new doctrine becomes the standard of philosophical thought for that age. So for Kant's purposes, he's responding to the age of rationalism, or as some people say, empiricism. And this age in philosophy was really heralded in by a guy by the name of David Hume. And Hume himself was responding to thinkers such as Descartes. Descartes is famous for the saying, I think, therefore I am. And what Descartes was doing there was trying to prove his own consciousness existed. And he eventually came to the conclusion that himself, his consciousness, 
was separate from his body, that these are two separate entities. And Hume, in response, argued that you can't assume that. There's no way you can assume that consciousness and the human body are two separate entities because all we have to measure the world with is our own rational, empirical thoughts and interactions with our surroundings. None of that wishy-washy gobbledygook. If the self exists, then what it is really is a byproduct of all these other things that we have as human beings. It's a byproduct of our memories, our sensory experiences, our decision-making process, and all this comes together to create what we call the self as an individual person. But that's not all, of course, Hume applied his rational thought to. He applied it to every single philosophical subject you could possibly think of. And so, of course, we have to have a response to this new philosophical normal, and that's where Kant comes in. And Kant, in his very famous work, The Critique of Pure Reason, comes in and says, yes, of course we have this physical reality around us that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis, but we don't know if the reality we're interacting with is the true reality because we're only experiencing it through the instruments that we have as human beings. And who's to say those instruments aren't flawed? Who's to say that those instruments that we do have can truly grasp the nature of reality? There has to be another reality out there, a reality in and of itself, in its most pure form. So Kant proposed that there are essentially two realities. There's the phenomenal reality, and that's the reality we're experiencing right now. This is the reality as we perceive it. And then there's the noumenal reality, and that's what reality truly is, as Kant calls it, the thing in itself. So let's explain this a little bit. Let's say we have an apple, a nice, red, juicy apple. And in this example, humans don't have the ability to see color. So everything we see is black and white. That means our phenomenal experience with the apple has changed. Instead of it being red to us, in our reality, it's gray. And let's say the only people on the planet are myself and this other person who can't see color. There's no way that he can prove that his gray apple is the apple as it is in its pure form of reality. And I, in comparison, cannot explain to him why the red apple is the true experience of reality. Or another way I like to think about it is how animals view the world. For example, this desk that I'm sitting at is interpreted differently in our phenomenal reality than in comparison to my cats. So the cats interpret the desk differently than I do, but we can both agree on the fact that the desk exists. Or how about a fly on the desk? The fly's experience with it is completely different from anything that I can imagine. But who's to say the fly isn't closer to the noumenal reality than I am? So what Kant is saying here is he's not rejecting reality. He's not saying the desk doesn't exist, but it exists in a form that is completely un 
realizable to us human beings because we're limited by our own senses. And I've always thought this line of reasoning by Kant was really interesting because essentially he's right. We all have our own interpretations of reality, but there's no way we can verify that our interpretations are what reality truly is. Who knows what the noumenal experience of that apple is? Is it really red? Maybe it's purple in the noumenal reality, or orange, or some other color. But here's where I kind of disagree with Kant. I disagree with him on the notion that we can never understand the noumenal reality. I feel like we can understand the building blocks of the noumenal reality. Just because we may never be able to experience it ourselves because we're all flawed human beings, that doesn't mean we can't understand how all the components of the universe come together to create the world that we live in now. And one of the ways we do this is through technology, but I feel the main way we come to understand what makes up the noumenal reality is through rational thought. And that brings us back to where I started this podcast. Because to take this metaphor, I believe there's kind of a noumenal society and a phenomenal society. So the noumenal society is society as it is, society in and of itself. And the phenomenal society is the society we believe to exist based upon our own experiences, opinions, and interactions with other human beings. And I think that everybody kind of has a different phenomenal society in their heads. We all have different opinions and different understandings of how society works. But I would put forth the idea that none of us truly know what that noumenal society is, what human society is like in and of itself. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we get closer to that understanding of what the noumenal society is. There's only one way to do that, and that's through rational thought. Because what rational thought does at its core is help us recognize and factor out our own internal biases. None of us can ever become completely unbiased. I've come to the conclusion that I just don't think it's possible. It is possible for us to recognize what biases we can and work exceedingly hard to try and remove them from the equation so we can get a closer picture of what that objective noumenal society looks like. So as a tool, this is what rational thought allows us to do, is get a little bit closer to that objective standard. We can never get it 100%, I feel, but that doesn't mean we can't get it 50% or even 70% or 90%. And even if we can only get 10% down the road to understanding that noumenal reality, that's a lot better than remaining at 0%, which is exactly where we're going to sit forever if we reject rational thought. Because if you reject rational thought, you have no objective empirical standard from which you can base everything against and if we don't have that the question becomes what are we left with well what we're left with is seven billion different 
phenomenal understandings of human society and no objective way to say this person has a better interpretation of human society in comparison to that person. Essentially, what it means is that we cede control of human society to those who can yell the loudest. Because without rational thought, how can we say that Marcus Aurelius's version of human society is better than Hitler's version of human society? Without rational thought, the societal standard which becomes the most accepted is the one which has the most loud and vocal supporters. And I don't know about you, but that's simply not the world I want to live in. And now it's time for the final component of my defense of rational thought. Because let's say up to this point, you're with me. You say, okay, Spencer, I'm with you so far that we need rational thought in order to come closer to understanding what human society is really like. But just because we understand what that human society really looks like or have a better picture of that, that doesn't necessarily make whatever that noumenal society is right. That doesn't mean that that's the type of society I want to live under regardless of what it happens to look like. Just because it's the real deal that doesn't automatically make it the best type of society to live under. And that point I couldn't agree with more. I feel that oftentimes people fall into this mistake of assuming what's rational is the best or what's rational is what's moral. And that's a pitfall I want to avoid. It reminds me of a similar thing that I notice people do, and that is equate morality with one's political leanings. That people assume just because someone has the same political leanings as me, that automatically makes them a good person. And because someone has opposing political leanings to me, that automatically makes them a bad person. But I digress. Let's get back to the subject at hand. So, okay, we've come to this conclusion that just because something's rational, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the greatest, most moral thing in the world. So where the hell does that leave us now? That leaves us in the position of trying to create the most moral and beneficial society for the mass of human beings out there. And we can never create that society unless we understand what that noumenal society looks like. That if we have no comprehension of the noumenal, then essentially we're just building our society blindly. And that to me is a serious issue. How can you expect to build the foundation of a house if you don't know the material you're building that foundation on? It doesn't matter how beautiful and spectacular the house you build is. If you build it on a foundation of quicksand, it's going to sink rapidly. And that's why we need rational thought, because it helps us survey the landscape in a thorough, objective, and systematic manner. We can never build the greatest and most beneficial society for us all unless we understand what we're building on. And to bring this full circle, we can never understand what we're going to build the foundation of our society on without rational thought. So rejecting 
diminishing or discounting it is an extremely dangerous road to tread upon. And you know what? That rational understanding of the world doesn't come easily. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of effort, and it takes a considerable amount of deep and introspective reflection. And if we don't value that as a society, well, I guess my question is, where does that leave us? It leaves me personally very worried for our future. And that brings me to one of the central themes of this podcast, which is encouraging the people who listen to it to take the time to reflect upon these big questions in our society, to take time to reflect upon what the true nature of justice, of beauty, of morality really looks like. What does that noumenal version of justice look like? And how can I come closer to realizing it? And I'll tell you now that if you reject rational thought, you'll never come close to realizing what the true version of justice or beauty looks like. And that would be a human tragedy of epic proportions. Welcome, everybody, to the second segment of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing, and it's been quite a week for me here. So you're going to be hearing this podcast a little bit later than usual. And unfortunately, I've been making more delays than I would like. So what happened was that as I was approaching the conclusion of this podcast, I had a major technological meltdown. I left my computer on overnight with all my Audacity files that I had worked on for the podcast still opened, and then it crashed. And usually, that's no big deal because Audacity has a recovery function. But unfortunately, the recovery function seems to have missed half the files that I had recorded. So Audacity records in blocks. And for whatever reason, this crash had erased like two-thirds of the audio recording blocks I had previously completed. So I had some of the audio that I had recorded, but it was patchy because about two-thirds of it was missing. It was just silence. So I had no choice but to throw it almost all out and start again from scratch. Fortunately, though, I do have some good news, and that is, with any luck, this is going to be the last episode of Naples Ultra that I record on this computer because... My tax returns should be coming in shortly, and I ended up getting a lot more back than I thought I was going to. And therefore, I can buy a new computer sooner than I had hoped. So, here's hoping that two weeks from now, I'll have saved up enough money and have the new computer ready to go, and that I won't have any more of these technological issues, because... The computer I'm on now is without a doubt on its last legs. Well, more like its last leg because it's crippled, it's broken, and it doesn't have much life left in it. So the sooner I can put this nightmare behind me 
and get to something new and fancy and shiny and hopefully with a lot less problems than I have now, the happier I'll be. So with that being said, let's get into some current events because we've had, once again, a lot happen in the past two weeks. First thing, let's talk about something that happened here in my own neck of the woods. And that is, we had the federal NDP convention right here in my town of Edmonton. And unfortunately, I didn't get to go to the actual convention because I didn't feel like ponying up the cash for a ticket. But some pretty sizable developments happened there. So the main piece of information that came from the NDP convention is that NDP leader Thomas Mulcair was given the heave-ho by the party. The delegates at the convention voted with 52% to kick Tom out and hold a new leadership contest. And I felt personally that they were going to remove him as leader because Tom Mulcair had a chance to be prime minister. He had a chance to form Canada's first new democratic party government and he failed spectacularly. And as far as I'm concerned, when you have all the pieces in place to form the next government, yet you manage to bungle all the advantages given to you, well, there's no room for a second chance. Tom Mulcair had brought the NDP too far to the right, and most grassroots members in the party didn't like that. They wanted to move back to the left. And there's definitely a spot on the left in the Canadian political spectrum. Because one of the advantages that Stephen Harper had as a prime minister is that he could never be politically outflanked. There was never going to be anyone who was willing to go further right than him in order to win an election and undermine his base. The liberals, on the other hand, have to defend from both sides. They have to defend against attacks from the right and, theoretically, attacks from the left. And unfortunately, with Tom Mulcair as the head of the NDP, I don't think those attacks coming from the left would be credible. So now we're headed in to a leadership race. Although Tom Mulcair has said he will stay as leader of the NDP until the leadership contest is officially wrapped up, which has certainly raised some eyebrows, but at the end of the day, I think it's best he stay on because he's an excellent parliamentarian, he rocks the house in question period, and at the very least, until a new definite leader is chosen, I think he'll do the best job in trying to hold the Liberals' feet to the fire. While the decision to replace Tom Mulcair as leader of the NDP was something that I agreed with coming out of the convention, the convention also had another debate which leaves me wanting to potentially abandon the party. And that is the adopting of what's called the Leap Manifesto. And the Leap Manifesto is this document produced by a cabal of elite activists. And this manifesto basically is a document to completely reinvent the Canadian economy and eliminate both the production and 
the consumption of fossil fuels in Canada in a very short period of time. I think if the NDP bases their platform off this leap manifesto, it will be an electoral disaster for them. The manifesto is highly unpopular and far too radical for most Canadians to consider. Canadians like yours truly. And this shows a very deep divide in the party. There is a divide between sort of the old NDP, which stands up for unions and the working man, and I guess the new NDP, which is all about co-opting environmental and multicultural issues. And I would definitely consider myself part of that old stock of new Democrats. In fact, at the convention, NDP Premier of Alberta, Rachel Notley, came out and blasted the Leap Manifesto, and I was very proud of her. Rachel Notley is someone who I support and admire, and to see her come out and defend against the Leap Manifesto and defend these older NDP values made me very proud. Unfortunately, her defense wasn't enough. The delegates voted to debate the manifesto, whatever that means, and rather than solving anything, all that this has done is now left the NDP in limbo with this leap manifesto potentially hanging over his head, ready to drop at any time. And as a card-carrying member of the party, if this manifesto should ever be officially adopted, I will leave the party and officially become an independent because I feel that then we'll be in a situation in which none of the political parties in Canada represent my views and my values. And that's honestly, for me, a pretty sad place to be. I've always liked the fact that I felt that there was a clear party that represented myself and my views in my country. And now that I see this party departing from my particular stance, it leaves me feeling very alone. But we'll have to see what the future brings. Another tidbit of information coming out of Canadian politics is that the Liberal Party has set a date for the legalization of marijuana. They have said they are going to introduce legislation to legalize and regulate marijuana in the spring of 2017. Unfortunately, that's all they said. We don't know any of the finer details, but we'll have to wait until next year. It's just nice to know, however, that there is a set date and something is coming very soon. Moving to the land of the free and the home of the brave, we have an update on the presidential primary. The great state of New York just finished its official primary election and on the Republican side, Donald Trump cleaned up winning over 60% of the vote and almost all the delegates at hand. It was a big day for Donald Trump. He needed it. And there's no question that it looks like he's going to clean up in the next five states. Is it five or four? Sorry, I'm not 100% sure that are voting on the upcoming Tuesday. And if he exceeds expectations as he did in New York, well, it's very likely Donald Trump might be able to wrap up the nomination before the actual convention begins. On the Democratic side, it was a bad night for Bernie Sanders, who didn't perform as well as it looked like he was going to. And Hillary Clinton won New York by a margin of 58 to 42. But again, you hear of all these 
horrific reports coming out of New York that polling stations were opening two hours late, that people were mysteriously purged off the voting records so they were unable to vote, and just voter disenfranchisement left, right, and center. And the one thing I do like about this year is that I feel like it's drawing attention to just how ridiculous the American primary system is and how badly it needs to be reformed. I have one last story here about the American primary system that I just want to share with everybody because it seriously blows my mind. So Paste Magazine comes out and they report that a Hillary Clinton super PAC is spending $1 million to hire its supporters to go online and quote-unquote correct information about Hillary Clinton. And God, there are just so many things about this story. Where to begin? First off, this clearly shows that super PACs are coordinating. To me, there couldn't be any more clear evidence that obviously they're coordinating with the Hillary campaign and trying to change the narrative surrounding her online. The next is, this is a terrible idea because now everybody online who supports Hillary Clinton will be accused of being bought by her. So no one can ever have a legitimately good opinion about Hillary Clinton or a legitimately negative opinion about Bernie Sanders without the suspicion of them being paid to have that opinion. And I think when you have to pay people to have a positive opinion about you, that speaks volumes to your character. And the last thing I want to bring up is Paste Magazine reports the process that these attacks commonly follow. Number one, create fake accounts. Number two, establish that they are Bernie supporters by making them tweet about Bernie. Number three, harass journalists and influencers in their at mentions. Number four, have elites and other influencers quote these fake Twitter accounts and say that they are hurting Bernie's brand. Number five, pitch a story to The Atlantic, an American magazine, about the phenomenon of Bernie bros. Number six, establish a narrative that Bernie supporters are all racist, sexist young males who harass people online. Number seven, make it more difficult for Sanders to expand his coalition by tainting the view of said coalition for women, people of color, and anyone who just doesn't like online harassment or bullying. So there you have it. Hillary Clinton is using these supporters, and I know it's not directly Hillary Clinton, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but she's using these supporters to go and smear Bernie Sanders by making it seem like these are real Sanders supporters, and then creating new stories based off what these false Twitter users say. So she's essentially creating fake news stories to smear Bernie Sanders. And every day, it's like another story like this comes out and makes it harder for people to support Hillary Clinton. The only thing Hillary Clinton has going on her side is that the most likely opponents she will face in the general election are Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. However, I'm still not ready to discount Donald Trump from a general election because Donald Trump plays by an entirely different set of rules. He has taken the traditional political playbook, thrown it out the window, and started something completely random and ad hoc. Hillary Clinton knows the rules of traditional politics inside and out. She's been playing them her entire life. 
but she's going to be going up against an opponent who is unlike anything she's ever faced and will be playing by a different set of rules. So there's potential here because Donald Trump is definitely a wild card that it could go either way, that the traditional wisdom may be right. Donald Trump might just implode in a general election. Or, because he's playing by different rules, that means the same predictions we've always had about presidential elections just don't hold the same amount of water they once did. That his appeal to working-class voters might actually swing a good, sizable chunk of working-class states that usually vote Democrat to the Republican side, which could shift the election in his favor. Anyway, all I'm saying is I'm not willing to say Hillary Clinton has this all wrapped up quite yet, and she's going to be the next president of the United States. Last thing in terms of current events I want to talk about is UK politics. With the referendum on the Brexit coming up, I'm seeing polls show a tighter and tighter race. It seems like the country is almost evenly divided 50-50 on the issue of whether or not Britain should leave the European Union. As well, we have the aftermath of the Panama Papers hitting Prime Minister David Cameron very hard because I'm seeing for the first time since Jeremy Corbyn has become the leader of the Labour Party that Labour is starting to lead in the polls against the Conservatives. Because honestly, there is nothing that could play into the hands of Jeremy Corbyn better than the Panama Papers. Because he gets to paint himself as the everyman, which essentially he is, at least in terms of his lifestyle and approximate income. While David Cameron looks like a complete and utter elitist snob that's hiding his money and trying to avoid paying certain amounts of taxes into the government that he himself runs. Unfortunately, though, this isn't going to matter at all until the next election in 2020, and if David Cameron holds to his promise, he will not be running in that election. It will be a different conservative leader. Regardless, though, it's definitely good for Labour. We also have the mayoral elections coming up in London on May the 5th, I believe, and it looks like Labour's favorite candidate is set to win by a sizable margin. I've been telling people, don't underestimate Jeremy as Labour leader. Don't discount Labour as somehow being unelectable. People keep saying that all these working class votes are going to go over to the UKIP party, and that the UKIP party is going to surge, and Labour is going to fall, and etc, etc, etc. People have been consistently overestimating the power and organization of the UKIP party for at least half a decade. If you underestimate Jeremy Corbyn, you do so at your own peril. And that's all I'll say. Now, let's get to some questions. On a side note, we received a lot of great questions, including Jartan's update on the Panama Papers' effect on the Icelandic government. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to get to some of these great questions and topics today. So next week, we'll be doing an update episode where we can look at them more thoroughly. Thanks for your patience, guys. Our first question comes from Rin Matthews, and he writes, 
I think it's a good idea to talk mostly about American politics for now, but switch to international issues once the election is over, a sentiment which was echoed by most people when I asked whether or not we should continue talking about the American primary so heavily. Anyway, onwards with the question. He says, I have a philosophical question. One of the most important benefits of civilization is the division of labor. In Book 2 of The Republic, Plato remarked that it is better for a farmer to farm and a tailor to make clothes rather than to try and do everything themselves because different people specialize in different things. The thing is, learning takes time, and systems like capitalism prioritize productivity and efficiency over everything else. Every second a person spends learning in school is a second they don't spend working to make society better. My question to you is, do you truly believe that people should learn all they can? You've likened knowledge to a toolbox, but if you spend too much of your life gaining new tools, when is the time you are supposed to use those tools? I feel like society is slowly progressing to a point where we are all cells in a single organism, and our bodies, the arm and leg cells, aren't the ones to do the thinking, much in the same way that lower classes aren't the ones who make laws. All they can do is shout to the brain cells if they feel hot, cold, pressure, or pain in much the same way that voters can only signal if they want to keep things the same or not. Anyway, thanks for answering my question, Rin Matthews. Super interesting question, Rin. The one thing I'd say is that the time we live in now is far different from Plato's time. In Plato's time, it was probably best that the farmer sticks to farming and the tailor sticks to tailoring so he can become a master at his craft and then pass that craft on to his son so he can continue his work when he dies. But we've reached the point in human civilization where technology can completely replace the need for retaining that knowledge or it can store that knowledge itself in the cloud that we know as the internet. We live in the information age. And because we're living in this new age, a lot of historians, economists, and sociologists identify that we have a new type of worker for this information age, the knowledge worker. Because the issue for us isn't trying to protect that precious knowledge of the best farming techniques or the most efficient tailoring techniques. That knowledge is up there in the cloud. It's already known to anyone who wants to access it at any time. The question for us isn't how do we hold on to that information, it's how do we make the best use of it. And that's what employers look for nowadays when they're trying to hire someone new. They're not looking for people who specialize in one very specific thing. That is, unless you're going into a trade like welding or plumbing. We live in a world that's changing rapidly, as we talked about in the subject of the episode. So employers are looking for people with a deep set of skills that they can draw upon to best perform in that changing environment. They're looking for the people who can switch between tasks as needed as situations change or new information comes to light. 
you ask, when is the best time to use those tools of knowledge you have gained throughout your life? And the fact is, we use those tools every single day of our lives. We use them in our jobs. Hopefully, if you have a fulfilling job, we use them during interactions with other people. We use them when planning our future. We use them during civil activism. The one thing I really agree with here, though, is your idea of how the lower classes in society are basically like single-celled organisms that don't have a lot of opportunity to change the way society is actually governed. And to me, that's more a symptom of the fact that our political system has not caught up to the age that we're actually living in. And it's up to us when we eventually become leaders in society and are in positions of power where we can affect real change to change our political system so it actually looks like a political system from the 21st century and not the 19th century. Our next question comes from Sonny. And Sonny writes, Hey Spencer, I'm wondering what your opinion is of the Israel and Palestine situation and what you believe can be done to help solve the issues that result from this conflict in the Middle East. Sonny also writes in an apology for something he did a long time ago, and I'm not going to mention it publicly, but I just want to say you have no worries, Sonny. I'm not mad about it at all anymore. I didn't even remember it until you brought it up, so everything's cool. But I do appreciate the apology. Anyway, back to the question. I've been thinking a lot about the Israel-Palestine conflict recently, and I'm not 100% sure why. What I do know for sure, though, is that none of the current people in power in both those countries are doing anybody any favors in actually trying to achieve a legitimate peace outcome. On the Palestinian side, the Palestinians have to dump Hamas. Hamas is not doing them any favors it's only making their situation far worse than it needs to be the fact is that the israeli army is far more sophisticated than anything that hamas can bring to the table so in terms of trying to achieve peace through some sort of military outcome there's absolutely no way hamas can achieve that and in fact will only make things worse by trying to do so what the Palestinians need is some type of Gandhi-esque leader, someone who will lead them in civil, nonviolent disobedience. Because as long as Hamas represents the people of Palestine, they will never be able to achieve a moral high ground, if you will. On the Israeli side, I believe that Netanyahu does not want peace at all, and actively tries to undermine the peace process. To me, the only way we can achieve a peaceful resolution to the Israel-Palestine conflict is a two-state solution, and Netanyahu is firmly opposed to any two-state solution and will constantly do whatever he can to stir the pot. For example, continually expanding Jewish settlements in the West Bank does absolutely nothing to ease the conflict 
between the Israelis and Palestinians. He undermines efforts for the Palestinians to get more representation at the United Nations, which is a peaceful way for them to try and achieve statehood. So he actively goes about shutting down peaceful resolutions and avenues for the Palestinian people, making it so military options are their only means to fight back. He does this because, honestly, Hamas is Netanyahu's best friend. Hamas is what keeps him in power. Without Hamas, his political pitch to the people of Israel has absolutely no leg to stand on. So, as long as Hamas is in power in Palestine, then Netanyahu will always have a sizable leg to stand on in maintaining his power in Israel. And the same goes for Hamas in Palestine. Netanyahu is their best friend because with Netanyahu in power, they can always justify violent resistance. So as long as these two power structures remain in the country, peace will never be achieved because they just feed off one another. What I do want to talk a little bit about, though, is the use of force Israel exhibits over Palestine. And for me, the use of force the Israelis use against the Palestinians is completely unjustified. And maybe this is why I've been thinking so much about the Israel-Palestinian conflict, because it ties a little bit into something I've been studying currently. So I've been learning about when use of force is justified. At what point, and this is specifically in a law enforcement scenario, at what point a uniformed officer can use and justify force. And for force to be justified, three components need to exist. The ability, the intent, and the means to cause harm or destruction. And I would argue that Hamas only has two of the three necessary conditions to justify force. Hamas may have the intent to cause harm to Israel. It may have the means to cause harm to Israel in the form of its rockets. However, due to the sophisticated rocket defense systems of the Israelis, Hamas no longer has the ability to cause harm to Israel. And because that ability no longer exists, I don't think the Israeli army can justify the force used against Hamas. Anyway, Sonny, thanks for the question. I hope that was a satisfactory answer. Our last question comes from Giuseppe. He writes in and says, Hello, it's me again. My school has been blessed with some great history teachers. A plus for me, especially because I've always been interested in the subject. My history teacher always does a funny little fake cry when we talk about the fall of another empire. Or when we page pass a map of an already fallen one. He says... All empires must fall eventually, and I believe he is correct. When will the U.S. fall? This is often viewed as a silly question because it's very reasonable to assume the states won't collapse anytime soon. But they will eventually. Another question is when is the state's golden age? Has it passed? Is it passing right now? Or will it pass in the future? It's hard to guess the future, especially in a post-9-11 world, and the United States always seems to be so lucky historically. From its dawn in beating the greatest empire on earth, 
and continually leaping over challenges. Thanks for your time, Spencer Giuseppe. Well, the first thing I would say is I don't know how much I would call the United States an actual empire. I used to be fiercely anti-American in my younger years, and since then I've definitely come around to appreciate the great country far more than I used to. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that I married someone from America, but now my thinking is when I hear people potentially bad-mouthing the United States, sometimes you'll hear Canadians who are fiercely anti-American and they'll start bashing the United States, and I'll feel like I have to come and defend them because their honor is now, at least in some part, my honor as well. So I'm not going to come out and say that the United States is this great evil empire or anything like that, because there's a strong difference between the United States as a quote-unquote empire and most other empires that have existed in history. And that is, I don't think the American people want an empire. They have no interest in fulfilling some great imperial dream. But let's look at other empires. Let's take the British Empire, for example, because it is the latest in our history, as well as being one of the most well-documented. And British subjects gained a large amount of pride from the British Empire. They enjoyed the fact that they were part of this tiny island nation that stood atop the world like a colossus. And they were proud that their culture and their lifestyle had reverberated so prevalently across the globe. Whereas you talk to Americans now, and when you bring up their military adventures, for the most part, Americans don't think very highly of them, unless they happened to be World War I or World War II. Americans just don't want the burden of empire, at least I feel. And while there's no question that America is the most powerful country on the planet right now, that doesn't necessarily make them an empire, or at least an empire in the sense that we traditionally understand it, because Americans certainly do project power over every continent on the planet. So maybe we need a new word for what America is currently. But onto your question as to when America will fall, if America is not an empire, then maybe it doesn't ever fall. Will their power in comparison to other countries on the globe wane? Potentially, but I don't know if there'll be some sort of great spectacular collapse. In fact, I might go as far to venture in saying that America will be the last superpower before some sort of international government is formed. Because I do think we're headed towards an international government. That right now we have three levels of government. We have municipal, provincial, or statewide, and then lastly federal. Do I think it's impossible that we'll have an international level of government above that? Absolutely not. I don't think that it will happen within our lifetimes, but I do think when it does happen, there's a strong possibility that the United States will still be the most powerful country on earth at that point. And if we have an international level of government, that effectively means we're all one country, so there's no real superpower left to be had. 
which means the United States will have the historical title of being the world's last superpower. But on to the question, when was the United States' golden age? To me, I think the United States' greatest age, and any time that you might call a golden age, was definitely right after World War II. The United States was unquestionably the most powerful nation in the aftermath of World War II, and its economy had just entered a boom time after the Great Depression. So I would say the golden age for the United States existed in that time period after World War II and up until the beginning of the Vietnam War. And when will the Americans' next golden age be? Well, obviously, after they elect Donald Trump and he makes America great again. No, definitely not then. Honestly, I have no idea when the next quote-unquote golden age will be. If I see a golden age on the horizon for mankind, I think it will come in the aftermath after fusion power has been perfected. Once we perfect fusion power, in theory, we'll have effective, renewable energy sources that can be used to power virtually anything. And that, to me, represents a vast technological shift in the way our society will conduct itself. We won't have to worry about energy crises anymore. We won't have to worry about fossil fuels polluting the planet anymore. It sounds like the potential for a golden age is certainly there. Anyway, thanks for the question, Giuseppe. I hope that was a satisfactory answer. And with that, we are at the end of our 14th episode of Naples Ultra. I want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please don't hesitate to email me at spencer at npupodcast.com or reach out to us via Twitter at npupodcast. In response to last week's question, the consensus was that even people who live internationally appreciate the talk about the American primaries because they want to know what's going on. In fact, nobody sent me an email and said I was talking about the primaries too much. So, until the presidential election is over later this year, we're definitely going to be continuing our coverage of this very important moment in history. Because I do think the 2016 election will either be a pivotal changing moment, or set up the pieces for that changing moment. Because everybody talks about, oh, this election is historical. But they say that about every election. This one, I think, definitely has the potential to be historical. And for this week's question, I've been thinking a lot about the future of warfare recently. And I'm interested to hear people's opinions on this subject. Because I think warfare, as we have conventionally understood it, is dead. I don't think that we're going to see two industrialized nations go toe-to-toe in a total war scenario in our lifetimes. That doesn't mean warfare will end. There are still going to be wars fought, but most of them will be proxy wars in countries which simply don't have a lot of sophisticated infrastructure. So here's my question. Do you think the age of total warfare is dead? Anyway, that's it for this week. I hope you'll join us next week for... 
our engagement episode. I believe this will be our fifth one. And the episode two weeks from now is going to tackle one of the most recommended figures you guys have asked me to talk about. And the two most recommended were Machiavelli and Marx. So the next episode is going to be about one of those two guys. I haven't decided which one yet. I'm leaning towards Machiavelli, but that could always change. So until then, this is Spencer Downing signing off. And until next time, you guys take care.